Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I am your host, Devin Palou, and so glad you could join us today, and we have a good show aligned up. We're going to be looking at truth, goodness, and beauty with my good friend, uh, Miguel. 
So uh, stick around for that. He's going to join us in about 20 or 25 minutes. But uh, again, glad you guys can join us. Busy time of the year right now. We're uh, gearing up for the Apologetics Conference here in Charlotte uh, right around October 16th and 17th. If you're in the area, I highly, highly recommend you come to the conference. It's uh, the biggest apologetics conference they put on in the nation. And it is Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is where I go to school. And and most of the guests you hear on this show uh, have been either trained at or in one way or another are associated with SES. So they really do a good job of putting out uh, top product for apologetics. So this uh, this year they're going to have a, a whole slew of apologists, people like Ken Samples, uh, I believe uh, some of our friends from the Discovery Toot is going to be there, Reasons to Believe is going to be there, uh, just a wide variety of people. And uh, normally you get 25 to, to, to 3,000, 2,500 to 3,000 people would show up for this, so it's a big event. Um, <clears throat> the Apologetics Conference concludes Saturday sometime around 5, I believe, uh, and then they shift gears, and it is the Ratio Christi National Symposium. Now, folks, they've been doing this for a couple years now, and uh, it's just a great time for those who are involved with Ratio Christi, uh, wanting to get involved with Ratio Christi. Great time to come, hang out at this conference, uh, meet several other Ratio Christi chapter directors, leaders, um, students are also invited to come. Uh, it's just a, it's a great time. Last year they had a philosophy track as well as a science track. Uh, for those who were who were wanting to come, so it's a great time. So check that out. Go to rationalchristie.org. You can find out more about the uh, national symposium there. Uh, let's see. We have a we have a big month coming up here in October. Uh, let's see. I think next Thursday actually starts October. Uh, for those who listen to the show for any length of time, you know that we uh, dedicate the whole month of programming in October to the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> and um, we've actually held several debates uh, over the last two years. I think I want to say like five now, uh, four or five, uh, with uh, some of our Roman Catholic friends. And uh, it's always been a, been a good time. It's been enlightening. And it's always a civil discourse. Uh, it's not... Uh, the Jerry Springer show on here. Things are timed. Uh, it's moderated. So next week we will be having uh, our first debate of the series with uh, Doug Beaumont, who was a former SES professor, now turned Catholic, um, was on the show last year and when we did our show on the doctrine of justification. He and uh, Tony Arsenal, who's been on the show two or three times, I think, in the past, and a uh, really, really good guy, uh, brilliant theologian. Um, <clears throat> they're going to be debating the doctrine of purgatory, so two hours on that, folks. You don't, you don't want to miss that. These are two very, very uh, smart guys and very good in their field. 
So that will be next Thursday, the following Thursday after that. Uh, we will have our friend uh, Nate Taylor back on, and he will be doing uh, another debate with a Roman Catholic on the topic of Sola Scriptura. Now, people love hearing Nate on the show uh, based on, well, he's done three debates now. He's done one uh, on annihilationism with Chris Date. You can find that on our website. He's done one um, on Molinism against a gentleman by the name of Jordan. And that was a, that was a very good discussion. Uh, the first one that he ever did was against a Roman Catholic named Devin Rhodes, uh, who, <clears throat> I don't know if he works for Catholic Answers, uh, but they certainly promote his his new book, The Protestant Dilemma, and uh, they just think he's he's a really good apologist. So we've had we had Devin on the show, we had Nate on the show, and uh, that debate was. <laughs> I would just recommend people listen to that debate, and uh, people really fell in love with Nate, and so he will be back again um, in two weeks to do to do the debate. So. Um, we do this, uh, you know, we <clears throat> spend time talking about it because we think it matters. Um, listening to James White yesterday, as he was talking a lot about uh, the Pope visiting uh, the United States and just some of the ways that uh, Protestants, etc., have acted. And uh, he brings up the point that uh, the reason um, so many Protestants today. A Protestant is it's not because of any kind of a doctrinal conviction. It's not because they're convinced through the scriptures, through the doctrine. It's just because of flavor. And so they don't see any real issues doctrinally with Roman Catholicism. And the issue is, you know, um, there are differences. There are, there are a lot of agreements. Now, I'm not one of these people that think, um, you know, you go around and see a see a boogeyman behind every bush, so to speak, within Roman Catholicism, because they've done a lot of wonderful work on the doctrine of the Trinity, on moral philosophy. Um, a lot of their stuff on, you know, the doctrine of God, classical apologetics, um, you know, I'm right with them, and uh, I, I appreciate their work. But, uh, and I think they would say the same thing, we can't overlook uh, some major doctrinal uh, divisions as well. <clears throat> and um, mainly <clears throat> things like the doctrine of justification, um, purgatory, because it's tied into that. Um, Sola Scriptura, right? What's our authority? These are, these are the issues, and this, they matter. They still matter. Um, they're doing apologetics, explaining why it matters. They're defending their position. Uh, and so it's not an attack on them. Uh, they're still bound to the Council of Trent, which does anathematize and make a separation from uh, formal, uh, I guess you would say, um, separation from uh, those who do not hold Catholic distinctives. Now, they would still say we're brothers and etc., uh, but there is distinctions. Um, so join us for that. Uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a good time. It'll be important. So, uh, and I'm still working on setting up a couple other debates that month, at least one more, and um, trying to get some, some people on to do a talk on uh, the canon, how we got the canon, uh, etc. So 
make sure you tune in next month. Again, next week, we will kick it off fast and furious with a debate on purgatory. Shifting gears here, I wanted to play this clip. Uh, it's a little bit long. It's nine minutes. Uh, but I played it on, at our Ratio Christie meeting. We're going over the book Tactics. And what Tactics uh, does, if you, if you don't have the book Tactics, you need to get the book Tactics because it really will um, help you to navigate through sometimes difficult conversations. Um, it really is a good book to show you how to engage with a non-believer, whether atheist, skeptic, etc. Frank Turek, Greg Kogel, Jay Warner Wallace, they all kind of work together. They do a lot of work uh, in apologetics together. And so each of them have some really good things to offer. So for example, um, Kogel has tactics. Turek has, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, as well as uh, Stealing from God, excellent book. Uh, and Jay Warner Wallace, of course, Cold Case Christianity and uh, God's Crime Scene, excellent books. <clears throat> so um, I just say that to say, you know, we use a lot of their books with Ratio Christie. But if you don't have tactics, it's one you need, definitely one you need. In this clip, what you'll hear is Frank Turek using tactics uh, with a young lady, he's at a particular college, and I'm not sure what one off the top of my head, uh, but the girl is asking if uh, if God is going to send her to hell. Now, I would just say, listen to the clip, and what you'll notice is Dr. Turk is going to get clarifications. He's going to ask, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? What do you mean by? These are very important uh, because, as you'll see, what happens is he is covering numerous assumptions that are hidden within this girl's um, question. And so uh, I want to play this clip, and uh, you guys listen to how Dr. Kirk handles uh, this particular skeptic, and uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Well, there's no way to prove, uh, 
that you can prove God in this life, whatever if there's another. Well, let me ask you a question, Anna. If I were to give you a book, would you read it? Possibly. Yes or no? <laughs> it depends. I've got, I've got a lot of books. Well, you know, you don't have to read it now, but would you read it over the summer? Maybe. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, if God exists, you seem to be kind of apathetic about it. Yes. Well, why would God force you force you into his presence for all eternity? Well, that's not my question. My question is about hell. That, that is the difference between heaven and hell. hell. Heaven is with God. Hell is separation from God. I mean, is that your definition of hell? Well, that's basically what hell is. I mean, there's a lot of descriptors in the Bible about it. But at the end of the day, hell is separation from God. I mean, do you think I'm going to burn for all eternity? Well, it depends on what you mean by burn, because there's a lot of different metaphors in the Bible. Some, on one hand, you've got burning, on the other hand, you've got outer darkness. So you can't have burning and outer darkness together. They're metaphors meant to communicate destruction, meant to communicate being apart from God. Was Jesus' resurrection a metaphor? No, I don't think so, because otherwise then a lot of people died for a metaphor. So how do you distinguish between a metaphor and what's not a metaphor in the Bible? Oh, the same way we do in normal language. Like when we say, you know, this computer cost me an arm and a leg. You know what that means, right? Yeah, if I was an amputee, but we don't... <laughs> we generally understand most times when metaphors are used and when something is literal. So, um, I, 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 I don't think hell would be a nice place to go to, but even Christopher Hitchens says hell, or, or back up, Christopher Hitchens says heaven would be hell to him. He doesn't want God now, so he's not going to want God in eternity. Well, I'm not Christopher Hitchens. I know. But I'm just simply saying that if God exists, and if Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? And you kind of said no. Well, it depends if it's in this life or it's in a theoretically another life. Because I don't believe that you can prove anything about whether Christianity or whether there's life after death in this lifetime. So there's no, I mean... Why do you say that? Why? Why do you, and what do you mean by proof? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, good. I think that's true. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, why, why, why couldn't we prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? Because nobody... But all the testimonies about it were written hundreds of years later. There's a lot of, I mean, I have this testimony from a long time ago that doesn't hold much weight in, I mean... It doesn't matter how far back the testimony was. If it's eyewitness testimony and you can reconstruct the original, it could have happened yesterday. Well, what about Veritas? What does that have to do with Jesus? Just everything that he, I mean, you know, he wrote histories, you know, back even before... Um, I had, I had, I had, hang on, hang on one second. You seem to be saying that... You can't prove Jesus rose from the dead. Right. At the same time, you're saying you can prove he didn't. I don't think you're saying that. No. Well, yeah, because... It's highly unlikely because that nobody else in the history of human existence has ever risen from the dead. It seems very unlikely that one person in one specific situation would have, given that the only thing we have to prove it is eyewitness testimony from 100 years later. And Anna, that is exactly why the resurrection is such an amazing miracle. Because if resurrections happened all the time, we wouldn't look at Christ's resurrection as being anything unusual. What but about all the other miracles that were, you know, maybe some of them are true, maybe some of them aren't. You know? That's right. You have to evaluate them on a case-by-case -case basis. And let me just say, you're factually in error about when the documents were written down. Okay, even, when were they written down? 
Well, as, as you'll see tomorrow night, they were... I'm not going to see them tomorrow night. <laughs> okay, well, I can't go through the whole presentation of tomorrow night tonight. I'm sorry. Can you briefly summarize? Yeah, I'll say that all, most if not all, the documents were written down prior to 70 AD. And okay. much of the data that was written down goes all the way back to the event itself, especially decreed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, which even liberal scholars agree is pre-40 AD. So... This is very early testimony. Even Bart Ehrman, the great skeptic, says Jesus certainly existed, certainly uh, was crucified, certainly his disciples believed he rose from the dead. The only thing Bart Ehrman can't bring himself to uh, uh, believe is that he actually did rise from the dead because he says an historian can't know that. Why? Because philosophically he's ruled miracles out of existence, not because the data isn't there. Right, but how do you distinguish that from um, other miracles that have, you know, people say that, you know, they prove beyond a certainty that they interviewed all sorts of people and they definitely said that this miracle uh, happened on such and such a date. You know, all the different, you know, martyrs and uh, Catholicism. I mean, do you, you have to look at you. You have to look at each each alleged miracle claim on a case by case basis and make a judgment as to whether or not the eyewitness and other testimony is is good enough to meet the standard you brought up, which is the right standard beyond a reasonable doubt. So what other miracles happened in humanity? Well, I think the miracles surrounding Jesus certainly happened. What because, well, uh, the greatest miracle of all has already occurred. Right, so are there any others? The greatest miracle of all is already, I don't know, you have to, you have to figure right, out... Right, so, I mean, have you applied a case-by-case basis to other miracles? And what have you come up with? Well, you have to give me a miracle. I just can't comment on every single oh, miracle. And that's kind of beyond yeah. the scope of what we're doing here today. Okay? So, you have to look at each one on a case-by-case -case basis. If the greatest miracle of all is already occurred, and I haven't even told you what that is, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? No, the resurrection of Jesus. It creates, the, the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've just given evidence that the first verse is true. If that verse is true, are the other verses in the book at least possible? Sure. Okay. So you can't philosophically rule miracles out as David Hume does, as Bart Herman does, as James Tabor from UNC. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Because the greatest miracles already occurred. I mean, if God exists, miracles are possible. Well, it does. It does depend. I'm talking about an intervention of God into the space-time continuum. Okay. Let's you and me talk some more. I'll give you a book if you read it. If you won't read it, then I won't give you one. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, alright. Okay, good. Uh, but, uh, question. Um, do you think that I'm going to hell? <laughs> I think I'm going to hell if I don't bow my knee to a creator because I'm a sinner. Right. And if you don't bow your knee to a creator to get the free gift of eternal salvation, God will not force you into his presence against your will. He loves you too much for that. All right, folks, that is Frank Turk, and that's where he gets his I Don't Have Enough Faith to be an atheist seminar. By the way, every August they meet here at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, and uh, they run the, the Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. Phenomenal, folks. If you don't have the book, um, it's really based off of Dr. Turk's dissertation, uh, 12 Points That Prove Christianity is True. So it starts with, let me, let me see. See if I can find exactly the 12 points. 
try to see if they I know they have the they have the um introduction and they have the okay here we go all right so basically these are the the twelve points that prove Christianity's true this is basically the book um, point one uh, truth about reality is knowable and the reason they start with truth um give you a great example. Two years ago, uh, we went to the Pagan Festival in Belmont, which is actually uh, coming up this Saturday, uh, which is where all of the those in Wicca, the occult, witchcraft, etc., uh, come together, and uh, it's been basically a big celebration. And we went out there with uh, two or three other uh, team members from SES and uh, <clears throat> did some evangelism. The reason why it's so important to start with truth is these people all day long were denying it. So we would say things like, um, they they would say things like, well, we believe all paths lead to God. And I would say, well, uh, let's let's just look at Judaism and Christianity, or uh, Islam and Christianity. Christianity says God, uh, Jesus is God, the Son. And Islam denies that God had a Son. So how could both be true? And they would affirm, oh, well, it's true for them. And so they would affirm logical contradictions all day long. I spent 20 minutes talking to a Wiccan high priest and trapped her in about every single way. And she had no problem with logical absurdities, logical contradictions, etc. And so, really, um, truth is the ground to which we're going to build the house, so to speak. So if someone doesn't know what truth is, or doesn't understand truth, it's it's definitely easy to demonstrate to them um, that truth is absolute and truth is knowable, uh, etc. Because those who deny it end up making self self-refuting claims. So uh, they start with truth. Uh, second, the opposite of true is false, meaning um, that either God exists or God does not exist. Uh, for example, and if you demonstrate that God does exist, then uh, the opposite of that, that God does <laughs> does not exist, would be false. Uh, the third point, it is true that a theistic God exists, and then they give the evidence from the beginning of the universe and also the design, uh, looking at both the anthropic principle, which is the fine-tuning of the universe, and the teleological uh, argument um, another form of the teleological argument, looking at biology. So they get into a lot of that evidence. The fourth point, if God exists, miracles are possible. So you heard him as he was talking to this young lady. What he's trying to demonstrate is you can't just a priori rule out miracles because creation itself cannot be explained by nature. Nature didn't exist. Natural laws didn't exist. So to try and use nature as an explanation of how the universe came to be, um, it doesn't work, right? Multiverse, uh, multiple, um, well, there, there are the ideas with the, with the multiverse. I'm trying to think of the other, um, the other arguments that they give. Those things are contrived. They're, they're used to try uh, and explain the fine-tuning of the universe. It's not as though they're going out and have found evidence for the multiverse or anything like that. Uh, it's used as an explanation to try and escape the fine-tuning argument. 
uh, and all the all the other the, the cyclical models, etc., uh, of the origins uh, fail as well. So they do they do a good job going through that. Um, point five: Miracles can be used to confor- confirm a message of God. Um, acts of God to confirm a word from God. Point six: The New Testament is historically reliable. They go into one, two, three, four different pieces of uh, evidence for that. Point seven, the New Testament says Jesus claimed to be God. Point eight, Jesus claimed to be God was miraculously confirmed by his prophecies, miraculous deeds, prediction of uh, an accomplishment of the resurrection. Point nine, therefore Jesus is God. Point ten, whatever Jesus, who is God, teaches is true. Point 11, Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. 12, therefore it is true that the Bible is the word of God. And anything opposed to it is false. So I highly recommend the book, friends. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Contact Frank uh, if you're interested in having him come out to your school, your university, whatever, uh, and uh, he can do this seminar. If you're locally in Charlotte or Rock Hill, whatever, uh, email us at uh, scripture at yahoo.com. And uh, I'm also qualified to do this seminar. I've been through the training, so let me know. And we've been actually going to a lot of churches and doing that teaching. So let us know. All right, friends, we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we're going to come back with uh, our good friend Miguel Benetiz. I think that's how you say it. I hope I'm not butchering his name. Uh, And then we will jump into the topic Uh, quickly. Tomorrow, if you're in the area, Wake Forest, is the Nine Marks Conference. They're doing it Southeastern, the annual conference. It's a huge, huge deal. About 1,000 people show up for this. Um, we had my pastor, actually, Dave Keen, on about two weeks ago to go through, walk us through the Nine Marks of a healthy church. Uh, this year, we are going to be focusing on uh, church discipline. So if you're in the area, come on out, Wake Forest, Southeastern, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. Be right back after this. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. 
And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that 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 doesn't say that salvation is by works. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. Friends, welcome back, and we are on the air again, and we are going to be looking at the topic today of truth, goodness, and beauty from a Christian worldview. And we're going to have my buddy uh, Miguel Benitez on with us, and you can correct me here in a second if I'm butchering the name. Uh, but he is an adjunct instructor of worldview at Beth Haven University on the Orlando campus. He's an apologist with Doubtless Faith Ministries. Miguel received an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University and is uh, currently pursuing a MA in Theological Studies at Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando. Miguel, are you there? Yeah, how's it going? Going great, man. Glad to have you on the show. It's been a been a little while, hasn't it? It has, it has. Um so just a couple of quick little things. Um, I, I think the last I was on the show was about a year ago. So just a quick update. Unfortunately, Bellhaven's Orlando campus actually just shut down like two months ago. So that is no longer uh, the case there. But I did adjunct there for two years, uh, teaching worldview there. And um, and so now I'm teaching history and apologetics at a Christian high school in Central Florida and then also I did complete about a year of theological studies at RTS, but I'm currently pursuing my Ph.D. in humanities with a concentration in philosophy out of Faulkner's Great Books Honors College. Wow. That's, that is really – that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's great. it's been a bit of a crazy year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm, um, actually, uh, I'm actually planning to go to the – conference um in in charlotte so hopefully we can uh catch up there too oh you're gonna be at the apologetics conference yeah yeah we have we've got to get together we'll 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 exchange numbers we've definitely got to get together i'd love to love to see i think it was our buddy ted wright that hooked us up right yes yes it was 
right. He says uh, to me, hey, I know this guy. He's reformed like you. Yeah. And he's a classical <laughs> yeah. apologist. <laughs> right. I said, yeah. hey, there's, yeah, you know. Like, in there. Yeah. Yeah. You, me, and R.C. Sproul, that's about three of us right. that are reformed <laughs> and classical apologists. Right. So yeah. I told him, you got to hook me up with him. So, uh, and then you're you're married, right? You have uh, tell us a little bit about your family. I am. Uh, I I am married, and we have a five month old now. So wow, wow. Yeah. So that's yeah. keeping you busy. A little boy or girl? Yeah. It's a it's a little boy, Alex. And uh, yeah, I mean we we are in love with him. He has been awesome. I can say even just in a short period of time, um, just the perspective of being a father has drawn me closer to God um, in, in just a new understanding. This is interesting. You know, when you get married, I think the Lord uses that as, as a means uh, by which you now understand certain things um, better or you, it draws you closer to God. And I would say even just in this short time, uh, parenting has done the same. Yeah, you know, I, I you always hear that before you have a kid and you just kind of, yeah, 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 whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when you have a kid, you know, I've got a little two-year-old little girl, and I'm telling you, man, your life, you can't, uh, it's like trying to explain color to a blind person, you know, uh, yeah. how, do you, how do you explain that, you know, it's like, unless right. you have a kid, you can't explain the emotions, the love, uh, I mean, it's it's incredible, so I'm happy to hear that. Uh, for those of uh, li- those listening who don't uh, remember last time you were on or, or anything about you, tell us a little bit about your background, your history. How did you become uh, a Christian? Did you grow up in a Christian home? And how did you get involved in apologetics? Yeah. Um, so um, last time, it'd be interesting uh, for folks to go back and listen to it if they haven't, we spoke on the issue of homosexuality and dealing with the changing culture. That was before the Supreme Court decision. So, uh, but I think a lot of what we talked about <laughs> is even more applicable now. Yeah, so, everything's um, got worse. Everything's got worse yeah, since yeah. you were on last. Yeah, definitely. So, um, but I'd encourage folks to check that out. But yeah, basically, I, I became a Christian uh, when I was about 13 years old. Um, pretty crazy story. We had moved. Uh, from Central Florida down to South Florida, just in search of of better life, me as a kid, and then with my parents and my little sister. Um, And then just for for different reasons, my parents ended up enrolling my sister into a Christian school. She's in elementary school. She's, you know, the gospel's preached to her. She comes home, starts, you know, encouraging us, why aren't we going to church? She's asking me if I'm saved. She's asking me if I'm going to heaven. I'm 12, 13 years old. I have no idea what all this is about. And, uh, wow. And then, yeah, in God's providence, my aunt invited us to church at that right around that same time. We went to church. My whole family got saved there. Um, and then, yeah, I would say that, you know, um, I love the Lord and, and was pursuing him. But, um, you know, just the churches I was in um, just – didn't put a big emphasis on any, on the life of the mind. That's just the bottom line. It just wasn't that important. And so I didn't hear the word apologetics all the way through until I was 21. Had a biology professor that uh, just kind of just hated Christianity. He would mock Christianity in the class. Um, he would talk wow. about the historic Jesus never existed. He would make fun of the Bible. Um, and 
So I expected to get evolution, but I, I could have never been prepared for what uh, he had. And being that I, I didn't even know there was this field of apologetics, um, that, that that was just a really trying time for me in my faith. And um, and so that that's kind of what started the journey. And I just kind of tried to find my way, uh, found some resources, and um, and then I came across, uh, I guess, the first bit that I would have gotten is some of Answers in Genesis stuff, but then soon after that, William Lane Craig. So um, I know people have, you know, mixed feelings with the Answers in Genesis, but it at least taught me about Christian worldview, and, and that was right. big for me because I didn't have those categories. And then, yeah, once I started listening to some William Lane Craig and um, I actually heard his debate on the resurrection with Bart Ehrman. I, I actually, I'm a bigger nerd than that. I didn't listen to the whole debate. I actually read the transcript. And so wow. I've been reading the transcript, and I'm highlighting and underlining, and I'm just going back and forth and back and forth. And just at the end of it, I was amazed that the Lord had given us so much evidence that Jesus rose wow. from the dead. And so that kind of sealed the deal for me. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, I have a couple of thoughts. It's it's funny how the uh, angry biology professor actually uh, made a Christian apologist to uh, tell him to keep up yeah. his work, and you should send yeah. him a thank you note and let him know now you're defending the faith full time because of right. his efforts. But uh, I was also struck, you know, you're saying Answers in Genesis was one of the first. Uh, same with me. You know, I really fell in love right away with, with uh, creation science. I didn't even know there was there was such a thing. Um, I've actually been able to, to uh, maintain my young earth creationist beliefs, uh, but I am a, I'm still a huge fan of uh, William Lane Craig and Ken yeah. Samples and all, all those guys. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not as angry or divisive, I don't think, as, as Ken Ham. Though, yes. you know, he's got a lot of good scientists that work for him. I just don't agree with his uh, necessarily his his methodology, Agreed. but uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that's great, man. That's a really neat neat story. So yeah. And so you're, now I'm uh, while I was at Biola, um, met Kristen Davis, who's out of Jacksonville, Florida. She had started a ministry, Doubtless Faith, and so that's actually who I'm with, and what I do most of my apologetics through. Um, and folks can check that out at doubtlessfaith.com. Basically, what we do is we put on events put on uh, conferences at different churches, try and train Christians in apologetics. And so uh, the Lord's doing some neat things. Yeah. Um, do you have, a, like, a particular area of interest uh, in the apologetics field that you uh, you like to study or kind of broad? Sure. The, the, initially, I just – initially, like you said, you know, I started with the creation science stuff, but – um, and that, that was just really interesting and fascinating to me. At Biola, the program is pretty broad, um, but um, for me, it, it's been, I'd say, something more along the lines of the kind of cultural apologetic type stuff, um, and engaging the culture, engaging the ideas. Um, I am actually doing my Ph.D. research on um, aesthetics as a, as a signal of transcendence. Uh, so beauty pointing us to God's existence, um, and, and wow. that's just something I've been fascinated by uh, most recently. That that's kind of what I've narrowed it down to. But um, so so that would be kind of my focus at Dallas Faith. Where 
you know, we 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 we're trained in apologetics, and so we could certainly do any topic at a, at a church or school or whatever. But but um, but yeah, that would be my passion is is just engaging ideas, the worldview stuff. Um, I, I've, I've learned a ton from Ken Samples, who you mentioned. He was actually my first professor at Biola, so I wow. just learned from him and appreciate him so much. And then um, the other, I would say, really influential um, guy on me over there would have been John Mark Reynolds, and uh, that's probably why I'm talking to you about what I'm talking about today. So, yeah. Wonderful. That's great. Well, let's let's get into the topic a little bit here. We're going to talk about sure. God. Uh, as the foundation for goodness, truth, and beauty. So, this is going to be kind of uh, new to a lot of a lot of folks. But uh, why goodness, truth, and beauty? Yeah. So, um, most have probably at least heard that those three put together: goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, and, and that's just kind of been, if if I had to kind of sum it up, that seems to be the 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 ultimate thing that humans are searching for. This is this kind of sums up what what it means to be human. We 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 wrestle with these ideas. What is true? What is right or good? And and why why these why this sense of beauty? Why does beauty seem to play such a role for us? Um and and it has nothing. You know, some people think, oh, that's just for you know, smart people to think about those things. But, I mean, even if you think just your typical teenager who gets moved by music in a certain way, you know, and and they listen to music and they feel like that's just, it, it touches them in a way that nothing else does. And the question is why? Why do, does, do things like music move us the way that they do? And um, and, and I would say it's because they can't contain beauty and and we are ultimately searching for beauty as humans. Yeah, I think that's uh that's you're right. There's a mark kind of just of something that transcends uh just transcends I guess space, time, matter, everything when you get into those things like music, etc. So yeah, yeah that's uh, that is. um it's interesting because a lot of times in apologetics, we get caught up with with um, you know arguments for God's existence, and 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 I think those are great, and and I think they're important, and we should know them. Um, but sometimes, right. sometimes there's just markers, there's indicators that are what Peter Berger, a sociologist of religion, he calls them signals of transcendence, and huh. and, and basically what it, what he's saying is. No, I'm not laying out some deep philosophical argument. I'm just saying when I look at this, whatever this is, it seems to be essential to being human, and it seems to be rooted in the transcendent. And I think that in itself is valuable, and and, and we should we should think about those things as we're engaging the culture today. Amen. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because we were at a. Um Let's see. It was a conference. Well, it wasn't a conference. It was a it was an event that they do in the mountains, about four hours from us. And we went up there last weekend. Not last weekend, the one before. And uh, that's that was kind of their thing. Was art, music. Uh, it was really neat. I mean, it was like hanging out with a yeah. bunch of hippies out there, of Christian hippies. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just it was interesting how the the you know music and art, etc., uh, played such a big role um, with a lot of people uh, in ministry. Right. So. So how yeah, does and, I, and I think that that's something oh, yep. that we need to that we need to try and recover. And, and I'll let you know up front, I, I have no artistic ability whatsoever, which makes me kind of different in studying beauty because so many of the people who do pursue beauty are musicians or artists and, and so on. And, and I just, I, those aren't the gifts that God has given me. But um, but I think it's a it's an area, as we think about goodness, as we think about truth, um, you know, I think it's an area that we're lacking in. Um, think about any apologetics conference that you've either spoken at or been to. You you have certainly heard defenses of truth, defenses of beauty. It's guaranteed that when you go to an apologetics conference, that's going to be on the list of things that are going to be talked about. Now, you've been to enough that perhaps you have heard a defense of objective beauty, but far and few between. Um, and, sure. and so as we speak about goodness, truth, and beauty, um, it seems like as apologists, as Christians, we get it. Goodness, truth, really important, um, but we've kind of forgotten beauty. And, and what that ends up doing is it, it kind of turns off a certain population that could really um, be engaged by sure. beauty. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're you're right. I, I I think you're right. R.C. Sproul has a whole series on on uh, beauty and aesthetics, and he talks about you know it's just a shame how uh, the Christian they well, pro- probably primarily in the Protestant camp has yes. has given that up, has given up the arts, has given up um, the pursuit of aesthetics and that. Would you do you, do you find that uh, do do you agree with that or? I do, and I think that it's rooted in certain biblical concerns, you know, and I get that. So, so I think it's probably just the the it's probably just a mark of overreaction. I've actually uh, R.C. Sproul, um, his church is actually about twenty minutes from me, so I've had the opportunity to go to his church. Oh wow! Um, and you want to talk about just a beautiful church? I mean, he <sighs> he they get it there. You know, you walk in and you just know that this place is serves a different purpose. You know, I'm not walking wow. into something that used to be a Publix or a Walmart or a Kmart. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm walking into a, a building that was designed to worship God. You know, so it's yeah. I've seen pictures online. It looks like an old medieval style. It's like it does. It does. Yeah. I love it. if you could if you could go in my mind and make the the perfect church, that would be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's good. How how does God serve then as the foundation for for goodness, right? Because of course the atheists, yeah. you know what they're going to say when you say something yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And we'll we'll talk about. And they, they basically, their responses basically boil down to three uh, ideas. Um, either the self explains morality, the society explains morality, like the young lady in, in your clip that you played earlier, or science explains morality. Um, and, and so if we think about the self, this seems to be the one that on its face just seems um, – like it, it's it's extremely unlikely. It, it just seems to go so much against our intuition about what is right, what is wrong. Um, 
people are mistaken. People get things wrong all the time. And so um, just because an individual says that they are going to do what they like doesn't mean that they um, that they are doing something that is morally good or beneficial. And so, um, and we get that. That's why we throw people in jail. That's why uh, we we pick certain friends. Well, that's why we hang around certain people, um, not just because of our interests, but also because there's certain things we don't approve of because we would say one ought not to do it. So I think this right. is the one that um, that is, that is just the least likely explanation. But society tends to be a very big explanation for folks who want to deny God's existence or God is the foundation of beauty. Um, and, and this leads to certain moral absurdity. Okay? Um, that basically, what, what one is suggesting if they hold this view is that whatever society says, that is what's right. So you, what you basically have to ask these people is, are you then saying that prior to the abolition of slavery in America, slavery was not only thought to be right, but slavery was right, okay? Mm. Um, and, and so they actually have to confirm that not only did the people think it was right, but it actually was right, um, and then somehow it changed after. And and, and wow. it, perhaps even a bigger problem, if you want to try and root it in society, is that you have the problem of what people call the moral reformer. So the question is, Abraham Lincoln was standing against slavery before the society was. So the question is, was Abraham Lincoln being immoral when he was standing against against slavery, which was approved by society? Wow. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, no, and and I've asked many people this question, and and you do get certain answers that you just have to wonder, do you really mean that, or are you just trying to kind of win this argument? Because some folks, I remember, I'll never forget, I mean, I I couldn't believe myself. I was in an undergraduate class. uh, It was a religion class. And, of course, I mean, everyone in the class uh, held to subjective morality. They didn't think there were any absolute moral values. And so... I remember, like, I just couldn't believe it. I raised my hand, and I'm like, so so are you guys really saying, and this was just an open question, that if the Nazis won World War II and brainwashed us all, that their view, their ideas would be moral? And I had students say yes, you know? And wow. so it's like, yeah, you can say yes. But going back to what I was talking about, Whatever it means to be human, okay, tells me that there's just no way that's what it that that's what humans ought to be doing. Um, and and <laughs> right. so I realize I'm appealing to our intuition, but if 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 you know the Nazi regime wasn't wrong, if some of these things aren't evil, then I can't I I don't know that I can claim any knowledge at all because sure. nothing seems more true to me than that. Yeah. Yeah, two plus two is four. I mean, that's just about as uh, obvious. Definitely, and and so then you know the the final explanation is through science. Evolution um, is the explanation, and we'll see as we go through these three things: goodness, truth, and beauty. 
evolution tends to uh, be the explanation for all of it at the end of the day. And, and so, um, you know, they'll say that we've evolved in such a way that we find certain behavior preferable because it promotes the survival of our species. Okay, And so the problem is that what they're saying is because certain behavior promotes the survival of our species, we ought to do that behavior. Okay, and, and and again, you you can't do that. All you can state from kind of a naturalistic perspective is what is. So if humans act this way, they'll tend to survive longer. But if humans don't act this way, they'll die sooner. But as an individual, what do I care if our species continues? There's 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 just nothing uh, in it for me. I'm going to be dead and I cease to exist at death. So I just don't really see why that would be valuable for me. Um, I understand doing things that are short-sighted because it helps me, but why am I thinking long-term at all? Right. Um, and then, and, and so, again, it's this ought-is fallacy. They're saying they're they're trying to impose something that you should do from something that they're just stating is the case. And he can't do that. Dan Barker, in his debate with John Mark Reynolds, tries to reject this idea, though. He says, sure, you can get an ought statement from an is. He says, if you want to survive, you ought to drink water. Okay? And really what he's doing there is just kind of playing with the language. Um, all he can say is that in order for humans to survive, they need to drink water. But he can't say that there's this moral imperative to drink water. What if I don't care about surviving? Or what if I want to survive, but I disagree with you? I mean, you, you can't tell me that I have this obligation to drink water. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, ultimately, if we think about goodness, as, as we think about morality... Um, it seems that it needs to be a transcendent explanation, something that is beyond us. Because if we root it in people, if we root it in society, if we try and root it in our evolutionary history, um, then we lose any objectivity. And then we end up in all sorts of absurd conclusions that no human lives out consistently. And so the question is, what kind of transcendence um, explains this best? And it seems like a personal transcendence would be the best explanation for this kind of um, morality that applies to all and um, and, and is, is not just a matter of mere opinion. That's good, yeah. So it's it's not just something that's uh, kind of subjective then. That's good. Yeah, and I think this is powerful. And you've had guys uh, on your show, and that's why I'm not, you know, getting into – you know, real depth, the moral argument can be as, uh, you know, uh, intellectually rigorous as you want to make it. And you've had some guys on your show that have done a really good job of explaining it. And I encourage the listeners to check that out. But I, I think speaking again in, in the, you know, Berger's term of a signal of transcendence, um, I right, think there's something right. intuitive about it too. Even if we don't lay out, you know, if if, if objective moral values exist, then God exists. Objective moral values exist, therefore God exists. Even if I don't take that route, 
this idea that, hey, moral values exist. You know it. I know it. What's the best explanation for that, Um, even just on its face? And I think that many times we can appeal to people's moral intuition to try and get them to see certain gaps in their thinking. I'll give you an example. It's slightly uh, down the road here, but but I think it'll it'll help um, and in in ways that we can make this practical and ways that we can draw people into conversations in a certain way. Um, like I said, I, I'm a teacher of history and apologetics at a Christian school, but um, I have students from all different kinds of backgrounds, um, and, and that's um, just our demographics. And so not all my students are Christians, and they're Christians of different stripes and, and all of that. So it was interesting. I had one student raise his hand today, so um, this is a story that took place today, uh, raised his hand and said, uh, Mr. Benitez, do you like politics? I said, yeah, I have an interest in politics. He says, me too. He's like, and sometimes I feel like I'm the voice for the voiceless. And I said, well, and again, like you were talking about earlier with the tactics, what do you mean by that, right? So who is the voiceless? What do you mean by the voiceless? He's like, oh, just all sorts of people. Um, But as I'm talking to him, I start to kind of get a feel for perhaps the a political persuasion from which he's coming from. And and, um, and so I asked him, so do you think that uh, unborn children who get slaughtered in clinics would qualify as the voiceless? And so you could tell it just caught him off guard a little bit. Why? Because right. he has more intuition that says, hey, people who 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 don't have a voice ought to be protected. But perhaps he, you know, he sniffed out an inconsistency when I asked him. So is this the kind of voiceless you're talking about? Um, and and so it was just an interesting conversation because intuitively he knows the voiceless need a voice and they should be taken care of. And as Christians, we should seek to be that voice for them. But um, he was he was thinking on a whole different <clears throat> level. So. Right. Absolutely. Those who are interested in calling in and talking with uh, Miguel on this topic, the number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907, and I'm sure we'd love to hear from you. Um, let's see, how, how does God serve as the foundation uh, for truth? This one comes up a lot. Yeah, and, <laughs> as well. and, yeah. and I'm going to... Um... Yeah, there's all sorts that could be said on this, and I'm going to shift it a little bit. So um, I'm not going to talk so much about uh, the existence of truth, although I think God is necessary for that because things don't just pop into existence out of nothing. I think that's intuitive, and so that's worth mentioning. But more I'm talking uh, from a view of epistemology. How do we know what we know? So how can we know truth? And um, Plantinga, uh, Alvin Plantinga, who's a Christian philosopher, um, very well known, has just done a lot of rigorous work and has been a great help, even though I don't know if he'd consider himself an apologist, and he tends not to go down the road most apologists go. um, He still has been just a a gift to us as apologists um, in so much of the work that he's done. And so he came out with this evolutionary argument against naturalism. And so basically what he says is 
that um, if you believe in evolution, you should not believe in naturalism. Those two beliefs, naturalism being the belief that everything is physical, there is no uh, supernatural, there is nothing transcendent, uh, the physical is all there is. And he's saying you can't hold both of these beliefs simultaneously, or you have no foundation for believing both of these at the same time. And um, and so it's it's interesting because what he's saying is if our if our cognitive faculties, so you know to make it simple, just our brains. If our brains are evolved for what? What is the end game of evolution? It's survival. Okay, and so if our brains are have evolved for survival, and it causes behavior that is adaptive, right? So behavior that that helps us survive. So brains are made for survival, and the brains lead us to behavior that is made for survival. Then the nature, the natural part, the brain, doesn't care if our beliefs are true or not. It just wants us to believe whatever will help us survive. So, right. Um, because the, the goal of evolution is not knowledge, it's not truth, it's survival. And so if it benefits uh, someone to believe a lie, if it benefits people to believe a lie, in order to survive, then um, they would be selected for that. The people who believe the lie are more likely to survive and reproduce. And so whatever genetics they had that made them believe this false belief then gets passed on to their children, and those children then hold false beliefs. So um, so it, I think this is is a strong argument. Now, what a lot of people want to say is, but but isn't, isn't truth always going to help us survive better? And, and the problem with this assumption is that you're assuming that you know truth in order to, to make that statement. You're assuming from your experience that, hey, when I know the right thing, when I know the true thing, it makes things run smoother. Well, you're assuming that when you thought you knew the true thing, you actually did know the true thing. But that's the very thing that's in question. Can evolution right. naturally account for knowing truth? And it's interesting because Charles Darwin himself really had a problem with this and wasn't sure. Um, he, he actually wrote in a letter, he says, With me the horrid doubt always rises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any <laughs> convictions in such a mind? So Darwin himself knew, hey, this might be a problem. Uh, because if, right. if we just came from lower animals that don't reason the way we we humans think we reason and don't have any basis for trusting their beliefs, what gives us a basis for trusting ours? Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Yeah, I don't think a lot of naturalists or atheists feel the, the power of that. I they mean, don't. I, I, just, uh, oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. They, they they don't feel the power of it, and I think 
and this is because not, you know, not 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 only is it a problem with determinism as far as okay, well, how do you how do you have any kind of meaningful ethics? How do you hold people accountable, etc.? But it really is yeah. that epistemological problem as well. It's both. Yes. I think yes. the deter, determinism gets uh, hit on a lot, but not necessarily the epistemological problem. I think you're right. I think you're right. So many times when uh, when apologists talk about um, you know about truth and epistemology, or I'm sorry, when we talk about determinism, like you said. Yeah, the the idea of hey, how does morality fit into this system? We're just dancing to our DNA, right? And so, um, what 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 value is found in life? What purpose and meaning can be found in life in such a deterministic uh, setup? But aside from right. that, and I think Plantinga and others who have you know taken his argument in a in a different direction. Plantinga wants to make a very very modest claim with this. But I think his argument has led to arguments that are extremely strong. And we're saying, no, it's not just, hey, you should doubt your beliefs. We're saying, hey, evolutionary naturalism just gives you no foundation for, for true beliefs. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and the thing is, people say, well, but no, I, we, we, we agree, right, that we know things. We agree that we know things. And I agree with Plantinga that, yes, that's a basic belief. That is that is a basic belief that we all hold as humans that we know things. So if you agree with me that we know things, what I'm showing is that evolutionary naturalism doesn't give us a basis for knowing things, so evolutionary naturalism should be rejected. So Right, right. I think that's uh that's the thing. And 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 so one ex- one one ex- objection that has been brought up quite a bit is that, yeah, but we learn through trial and error as humans, you know? So, so yes, we might believe a lie that, um, that helps us survive, but, um, we eventually kind of self-correct, you know, um, we, we evolve in such a way that, that we can correct ourselves along the way as we learn and all that. But, what is the huge assumption to all that is that through trial and error, we're actually learning true things. Um, and, and so, uh, for example, one of the, the examples that Plantinga has given in the past, just sort of um, roughly kind of giving the example, he says, uh, so imagine a tiger um, and um, people decide that the greatest thing in the world is to um, is, is to pet a tiger, okay? And you want to pet the tiger, but the best way of petting a tiger is to run away from them, right? You end with the right result, run away from the tiger, okay? Your brain doesn't care whether you believe the tiger is going to eat me or I want to pet the tiger. As long as you're running away, your belief whether it's true or false, doesn't matter. So what he's saying is it's just as likely that you would produce a false belief as it is that you would uh, produce a true belief. And so um, that would be one of the examples that he would give. Um, So one of the objections that some people throw out is like, okay, let's take a look at a simple math problem. 3 times 4 equals 12. So you look at 3 times 4, 
and you say, okay, it equals 12, so what does 3 times something mean? Well, 4 plus 8 equals 12. So maybe when you say 3 times something, what that means is you add 8. So 3 times 5 equals 13. We know that's wrong, but that that's kind of the analogy. And so they're saying, you see, it doesn't work because as soon as we expand our our reference point, we see 3 times 5 doesn't equal 13. It equals 15. And so we learn through trial and error. And I think that, again, the 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 assumption, and it's so hard sometimes, and this can be frustrating, but we need to remember as apologists and, and as Christians that are evangelizing that any any truth that's been that, that that we're aware of, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, they're really all truth. We know them because by the grace of God, and so it should not push us to frustration and anger with the non-believer but should push us to a, a place of compassion, a place of, of hurting uh, because they're blind to it, because they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so, um, but you think the, the problem is obvious, right? You're, you're assuming 3 times 4 equals 12. You're assuming you have some access to truth, right. objective truth. But as we've already said, Evolutionary naturalism just doesn't have any basis. So what you what you would actually have to show is how evolutionary naturalism can't fail to give you truth, right. and you just don't have that. That's right. You don't get that. Oh, this is a great topic, man. I'm I'm enjoying this. This is uh, this is good, folks. It's a little different approach that we. We normally take, but this is good. Um, let's go ahead and take a, a, a quick break, Miguel. If that's if you're good with that, and yeah, uh, give, the, give the number out again, give people a, a chance to call in. Uh, for those wanting to call and uh, ask uh, your questions, you can call seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, and we will be back right after this to uh, continue the conversation and take your calls. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. 
if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 5213 through 5312, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation. It was our sins that he bore. It was our our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes opened to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure and without sin. God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line. You have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbs all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. Amen. All right. That is Matt Chandler. You can catch him at the Village Church. Got a great podcast every week. Excellent uh, Bible teacher and stressing the importance of justification by faith alone, and that will be our anthem next month as we dedicate four shows to the Protestant Reformation. We will uh, kick it off with a bang next week with a debate uh, between Tony Arsenal and former uh, Protestant and uh, apologist Doug Beaumont will be there to debate purgatory. And the week after that, we'll jump into a debate on Sola Scriptura, and I'm trying to line uh, a few more things up. So next month, it's going to be interesting, so make sure that you join us. Uh, number to call, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Miguel, are you there? Yep. 
All right. Did you have anything you wanted to add to uh, how does God service the foundation for truth? Do you have anything you wanted to uh, to add to that before we move to beauty? Sure. Yeah. I think I think just the last uh, little bit that I'll add. And, uh, yeah, we got we got uh, uh, plenty of time, so feel free. You know, don't feel like you have okay. to don't feel like you have to rush. <laughs> okay. All right. As much time as you um, need, yeah. my friend. So, so with um, when it comes to truth, and, and anyone who's listened to uh, Frank Turek's um, podcast catches it in the in the opening as as it starts each time. But um, you know, because some people will result to okay, there are no absolutes, right? Because of this, so they they have a hard time accounting for this kind of objective truth, and so they say there is no objective truth and, and they usually don't come out and say it just like that but um that's essentially what they're getting at is there is no absolute truth and so um like in that opening for um the cross-examined podcast and radio show you know then the logical question to ask is well then is that true right and so right. um you, you've got so to, in order to have any kind of reasonable dialogue on anything, the assumption has to be that there there is truth, and and so I think this is common ground that we can we can touch on and say, hey, we both agree that we know truth. Now I'm asking, does evolutionary naturalism account for it? Uh, the answer seems to be no. What I've what I have gotten in response from some non-Christians when having this conversation is, well, but you can't be sure that God has given you the ability to have true beliefs. And, and what, what, I, what I think is important to keep in mind is that, again, we, we both agree, it seems to be just a, a foundational belief, a, a, a belief that we hold that we, we can assume. It's almost a safe assumption that we know true beliefs. So the question is, what kind of God would lead us to to have false beliefs or keep us from knowing truth? And that would be a, a bad God, an evil God, that, that eliminates any kind of possibility for truth or leads us into error, right? And, and so the, then what we have to ask is, okay, so that seems to have the same problem, not for the same reason, but the same problem as evolutionary naturalism. So what would be the better explanation is a good God. A good God would make us with the ability to know things. And so um, so, so I think, yeah, it does cut both ways. Theism has to deal with this objection as well, but we have to let theism, um, as classically uh, argued for, stand on its own, and especially within a Christian context. We're arguing for a good God. That's what the moral argument is ultimately about. So um, we're we're not just we're we're not just using this in one way and then kind of uh, you know special pleading where we're only making them meet a certain criteria. Um, an evil God would be insufficient for knowledge, and I would agree with that. And so anyone who believes in an evil God ought to reject that view. There you go. All right, good stuff. Well, let's look at let's look at beauty here. This is interesting. 
let's look at beauty. Let's get into the beauty a little bit and how does this work in the Christian view because you have, you know, when, you, when, you, when I see this, I'm thinking of art, for example, and you're walking down yeah. a, uh, you know, a paint, you're looking at different paintings and, well, what my wife might, may think looks beautiful, I may think looks ugly. How does how does beauty work in these uh, in the Christian worldview here? Yeah, that's exactly right, and and I think that um, our culture buys into that idea, and 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 for the most part, Christians do too. I mean, is that not the case? If you're walking down, you know, if you if you go to an art museum with your wife, I mean, you you may disagree on several paintings. This is beautiful. No, it's not. It's too dark. It's too light. It's too old. It's too new. We can talk about all these preferences. Um, And so then what makes beauty um, objective if it is? It just seems to be uh, subjective. And what's interesting is then we think, okay, so intuitively beauty seems to be subjective. But I'm going to actually argue that no, it's not that intuitively we actually do believe and hold to objective beauty, but we just tend to talk as if beauty is subjective. Um, so uh, for the reasons you, you listed, I also want to throw nature into the conversation. So we don't want to limit our discussion of beauty um, to art. Um, we would also want to throw in, uh, you know, the beauty of creation. And so um, I think, uh, one thing that's really important to say from the outset is when I first got interested in beauty uh, was I was sitting in my cultural apologetics class uh, with John Mark Reynolds as, as the, the professor there, and um, and he starts talking about goodness, truth, and beauty, and um, and you know he he's a Christian Platonist, so he he has a lot of and he teaches. Um, you know, the classical education um, and is, you know, loves the great books. He actually wrote a great books reader. So that's kind of the, the background he's coming from. And, and so he, he uses these terms a lot, goodness, truth, and beauty, and believes that they're ultimately fulfilled in um, Christianity. But what he mentioned, which I had never heard before, is, you see, it was that that I had mentioned earlier about, um, you go to an apologetics conference, two of these are going to be defended. Which are they? And it's obvious. Um, and he says, but if you notice in a culture, when the culture starts to decline, the first thing that goes out the window is objective beauty. So by the time Christians have kind of circled the wagons and are ready to defend morality, because it it's progressive, so it's a, a subjective beauty, subjective morality, and then subjective truth. And so if, if 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 we wait until we're dealing with subjective morality, many times Christians don't realize we've already started behind. We've already given the culture something. Uh, we've already turned over part of the Christian faith, and, and we're, we're not defending it. So uh, that was very eye-opening for me because I had never even considered it. So um, yeah. that, that was a big, yeah. So um, so he talked about that, and and, um, and so I'll give a few reasons as to why um, I believe that beauty is objective. So first is um, when you uh, will, think of 
if we think of, uh, you know, the most beautiful thing we've ever seen, okay, um, when you say that's beautiful, right, so whether it's a painting or a sunset, right, when you say that's beautiful, you are not stating a psychological reflection, okay? You're not saying this this painting is beautiful and all I mean by that is what I feel inside. You're actually making a comment about the painting, not about you. Hmm. Wow. And, and we believe that intuitively. And so that's why I'm saying, yes, we can say beauty is subjective, but if we think about what we're actually saying when we're looking at a painting and we say this is beautiful, then you know, we're actually saying something about the painting, not about ourselves. So that would be one uh, kind of argument for it. Um, the second argument for objective beauty is that not all aesthetic judgments are created equal. So, for hmm. example, and you, you can just give me any example. You don't have to work too hard for it. But uh, give me an example of something that you've seen that's beautiful, either from nature or a work of art. What, what do you think of when you think of something beautiful? Uh, where I live in Oregon. They're right on the coast, right on the ocean. Yeah. 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 So um, this, being able to look at the ocean, um, w w you know, being in Florida – we have the benefit that we can be on one coast and see an awesome sunrise and then be on the other coast and see an amazing sunset. And so, yeah, I, I, I can relate. I think the oceans can just be absolutely a beautiful scenery. Uh, my wife and I, um, when we got married five years ago, uh, we went to North Carolina for our honeymoon, we went to Bryson City, and and for the first time, this Florida boy who's born and raised that's never, you know, really, it, it was probably two or three times that I'd ever even been on a mountain, you know. So I'm seeing all these mountains, you know, and and I'm just blown away by it. Of course, I'm holding my breath the whole time that I'm driving because I think we're going to end up in the headlines, newlyweds, you know, drive off a cliff, um, but. I'm just blown away by the beauty. And then I got to see waterfalls. And it was just like, wow, like this is just amazing. Um, and, and so when we think about these things, so think about someone who goes out to the beach, sees what you're seeing, and says, it's just a drop in the bucket. It's just water. It's just water. What it, your response to that is, no, you've missed something. You're not saying, yeah. hey, you know, different strokes for different folks, you're saying, no, you must not see what I'm seeing. You know, I had a professor the other day um, in one of my classes talk about a family member that went out to the Grand Canyon. Now, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but um, I'd imagine that it's quite a sight. I mean, that it, it is very beautiful. That's what everyone I've talked to has told me that has been there. And so he had a family member go, and uh, when she gets back, he says, hey, how was it? And she says, well, once you've seen one hole, you've seen them all. Oh. We would want to say that even though she's expressing her opinion, I mean, everything inside of us says that opinion is wrong. And we're not just yeah. saying, oh, it's a different opinion. We're saying, no, she missed something. There's something she didn't grasp while she was there. So, again, we're, we're wanting to say, no, 
that thing, whatever it is, contains beauty. Yeah, you know, I, I think too with, with with issues of like the ocean, and I often often will use this uh, example when when doing Bible study or something. Um, I think our greatest moments when when we are in our biggest kind of awe, so to speak, is when we're reflecting on that which is outside of us. Whether it's yeah. looking at the heavens, whether it's yep. looking at the oceans, the the Grand Canyon, etc. It's something outside uh, beyond us. Like there really is this objective standard that just, you know, God uses it, right? With uh, with the with the heavens, for example, they declare yep. Yep. the glory of God. It's not a subjective, you know, type of thing. When you you study cosmology or you're looking at the heavens at night, I think, yeah, it's like you know, you you have to be in just awe, or you're 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 not getting something. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and and, and that all that we have, um, like you said, it's something else. It comes from something outside of us, um, and and that's what this whole idea of signals of transcendence is. It, it, that's what it serves for, and and so yes, they, they, the heavens declare the glory of God, and then what we see when it comes to art is as image bearers we are creative like our creator. And so when we see a beautiful creation, it reflects the gifting of God, the creator gifting his creation with creativity. And so um, that, that that is another example in which we can see something and say, hey, you know, you just, you don't, um, you, you don't get it. If you, if you don't see it, if you don't see this as beautiful, you're missing something. And it's not talking down to someone. If we think about morality or ethics more broadly, right, I mean, we would admit there's certain things that even as a Christian I thought were okay, and after studying it further, I said, you know what, this isn't okay. And then there's other things that early on in my Christian life I said, no, this is immoral, this is sinful. And then upon further reflection, digging into God's word, so on and so forth, I realized, hey, I had a misunderstanding about what this meant. And it's right. not moral. So just because I had a different opinion doesn't mean it changed from being immoral to moral. It, it it just means I was mistaken. So likewise, when it comes to beauty, just because your opinion was different at one time, it doesn't mean the thing itself changed. You just became better informed. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Very so, good. And then so. one... One one yeah, one more argument, and this would only be persuasive to the Christian, um, so not for the non-Christian, but um, it, it would be that God, you know, in the Bible, does call certain things beautiful, and we should agree with him. So, at the very least, if Christians are saying, hey, you know, I understand you're making an argument for objective beauty, I'm not sure if I buy it, I would minimally tell the Christian Listen, God calls certain things beautiful in Scripture. We should agree with them. And that serves as our standard for beauty. So, yeah. yeah. That's good, man. And, and I of think course, this is... yep. go ahead. Yeah. So, of course, as I said, um, what is the explanation for all things when you're trying to reject God as the foundation for these things? Um, evolution becomes the big explanation. Um, and it's so interesting because the, the, perhaps 
at least thus far in my studies, and I'm still fairly new um, into the study of aesthetics. It's what I've been dived into, you know, for the last year as this is going to be the focus of my dissertation. But um, perhaps most persuasive to me right now is the fact that, hey, Christians and non-believers, you know, theists and non-theists, atheists, we all agree that not all aesthetic judgments are equal. Um, So if I say a rose is beautiful and someone says a rose is ugly, or if someone says, to just make a bigger contrast, no, that rose is not beautiful, this dead rat being eaten by maggots is beautiful, we would say those two opinions, those two aesthetic judgments, are not equal. The, the, the person who is um, rejecting the beauty of the flower for the dead rat being eaten by maggots is making a, a, a less accurate judgment than the one who says the rose is beautiful. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's again, it's like you say, that I think people just know it intuitively that to say something like a rose is ugly and the maggots and, and the rat is beautiful is... But in, in our age, in our day, it, it really is this idea of, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And that's the same right. kind of a statement as uh, you're the one that determines truth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Proof for you, not for me type of, type of thing. Right? right, right. Yeah, and in fact, the so, similarities that I'm finding when it comes to beauty and morality are, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. That's what I was just going to so, ask. That's, that's, that's what I was going to ask. So, for, for example, C.S. Lewis, when he's saying... You know, he wouldn't know a, a crooked line unless he first knows what a straight line looks at. Is that the same type of argument you can give for, for beauty? Yes, absolutely. So that we need some kind of standard, and that's what I'm getting at. We all agree that, hey, the rose is beautiful, the rat being eaten by maggots is not. If, the, if a person disagrees, they're actually misinformed, okay, um, the only reason we, the only reason we can make that kind of a judgment is because um, of the fact that we have some kind of objective standard by which we can judge these things. So very much like what C.S. Lewis says. That's exactly right. I think the same argument applies. And so I think going to extremes in the same way we do with the moral argument is helpful. Because unfortunately, we're just kind of left in a situation where we do have to appeal to the intuition of the person. So as apologists, we're the only weird people who constantly talk about torturing babies for fun is wrong, right? Like um, we, we talk more about torturing babies than anybody else. But um, that, that, that's we're trying to make a point, right? And torturing babies for fun is wrong. It's morally wrong. Can someone stand there and say, well, no, it's not. I don't think so. They can, right? But it doesn't take away the force of the argument, I think. I don't think it removes the force just because someone can deny it. Um, Because we're making more than an assertion, we're appealing to what it means to be human. And and so I think that's where some of the real force comes from. Good. Good stuff. All right. Yeah. Um, So... To, to respond to the possible objection that comes up that, yeah. well, beauty is just an evolutionary advantage. Um, the biggest problem for this is superfluous beauty, that we have so much beauty 
that it really doesn't seem to make sense. So to tell me we find some berries pretty or attractive or beautiful while we find other berries to not be beautiful um, can help us because poison berries are ugly and healthy berries are not, fine. That makes sense to me. You may be able to have some kind of evolutionary explanation for that. But why you're moved by the ocean, why I'm moved by the mountain range or by a sunset or by a rose, um, it, it seems to be beyond anything that evolution can explain. Sure. Yep, that's right. And so, um, you know, I, I think I think that this needs to become more and more. We're asking ourselves, um, you know, how do we engage this culture in apologetics? Yeah. And and I think beauty has to really come into play here. Um, you know, even even the International Society of Christian Apologetics, their uh, conference in April is is their their theme, their their to- topic is you know, how do we engage in an increasingly antagonistic culture? You know, how do we do the the apologetics in an increasingly antagonistic culture? And I think that the way that we've talked about goodness, truth, and beauty, okay, and I'm I'm not necessarily getting into the apologetic methodology. We We can talk about that, and I agree from the classical perspective on we want to establish God's existence and we want to, you know, this and that. But what I'm saying is in casual conversation, this allows us to draw certain things in. Um, I'm talking the unbeliever friend or coworker that we have tells you when they come to work in, uh, when they come into work on Monday, says, hey, we just went to, um, you know, to, to the Grand Canyon, and it was amazing. It was beautiful. Or, hey, I just got back from a cruise, and the islands were beautiful. Um, that's a great time for, as you mentioned earlier, the tactic questions. What do you mean by that? What do you right. mean was beautiful? And then now here we have a meaningful conversation that is not um, awkward or intrusive or anything like that. It's just a natural conversation about meaningful things. Yeah, and uh, you're right. It's always going to point to to Christ as well. It's always going to point to yes. uh, somehow point back to the to the designer. Yes, so, exactly. And, and I think I think that. Beauty itself, like you were talking about the cosmos and things like that being in awe, it almost, in a more general way, because we we have some intelligent design theorists, you know, doing some amazing work, and they can get down to the nitty-gritty. I mean, Stephen Meyer talks about the signature in the cell, and it's like mind-blowing, right? So, So there's that sense. But I think that there's almost an intuitive uh, design argument, and beauty has something to do with that. So like Francis Collins, um, who who was um, one of the guys that mapped the human genome, um, he actually talks about his conversion story, and part of that was him being in nature. And, and so I think that when it's just that kind of a thing, and he rejects ID, so he's not one who says, oh, if we study nature, we see signs of God. 
what he's saying is he was just in awe of nature, and it pointed him to God. Um, wow. So while I would disagree with his point on ID, I would still want to affirm, yes, sometimes we're just sitting out there, and it overwhelms us. It grabs us in a way. We see the beauty, and it points us to God. Right. What are, what are some good resources on this? Yeah, so when it comes to apologetics, there's just not a lot. Um, and and so that that's part of my motivation um, for wanting to do this. But I would say a couple resources that I can recommend, and this is just an example, and I'm not knocking these resources, but just to give you an example of just how much work needs to be done in this field. Um, Doing Philosophy as a Christian by Gary DeWeese. I don't know if you're familiar with that work. Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen good. that. Okay. It's a very good introduction to, to doing philosophy. Um, I think he dedicates about four pages to aesthetics. It's a you know 320-page book, and he admits in the book it's just not his field and more work needs to be done. So about four pages out of 320. And then Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview by Moreland and Craig. Um, I've read very large chunks of it, and um, I've also searched the index, and there's no mention of aesthetics or beauty in the entire thing, and um, and this is a massive volume on philosophy, you know. So, that's that's um, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely something we need to do a lot more work on, which has been part of my motivation. But to answer your question more specifically – um the uh let me see there's a series that just came out um called the essential edwards collection and it's all about jonathan edwards okay um, yeah and and so there is one that is called on beauty jonathan edwards on beauty it's a little booklet um and it's not by jonathan edwards it's about jonathan edwards but they quote him at length in the book um, it, Doug Sweeney is one of the authors Owen Strachan is the other And then there's an introduction by John Piper So um, that that would be a, a Kind of a little uh, introduction It's about 130 pages But has some good stuff in there And you get some really good quotes From Jonathan Edwards Which is always nice too um, And then I would say Another uh, resource would be uh, Beauty by Roger Scruton. Um, he is a believer, although um, I'm not sure that he would consider himself an evangelical, um, but he is a, a believer, and um, I think that that is a helpful resource as well. Um, it's just called Beauty. It's um, published by Oxford, and um, it just really lays out some of the issues that, that come up in this uh, discussion. And then one last one that I would recommend is called um, the, let me see, it's a very tiny book, but it's a nice one, uh, Art for God's Sake by Philip Riken. Um, it's a call to recover the arts. So um, those are just some resources. There, there's a few out there. The theology of aesthetics has um, has become more popular lately, um, mo- mostly in Europe, uh, but it, but it's coming over to the United States as well. So there is a little bit of a resurgence, but when it comes to apologetics, there there is just not 
very much work done on this. There's a few articles here and there. There's one book I found, but I've not read it, so I don't know um, how good it is. And, and it's something I found through searching <clears throat> deeply, um, so it's not even something that commonly heard of, you know, so. Okay. Um, where is your blog at or your work if people are wanting to be able to find you and yeah, uh, the best, the best place stuff. for them to go. Yeah, the best place for them to go is uh, DallasFaith.com. I actually have my own personal page there, and then anything I blog, I do post directly on there. So, so that's going to be the best way, place to reach me, and to also see anything that I blog along the way. All right, Miguel, we appreciate you coming on the show, my friend, and uh, look forward to having you back on in the future. All right. Likewise. Thanks. Take care. God bless, my friend. All right, right, folks, and that was uh, Miguel. And uh, I think what we're going to do is take a quick break, uh, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. And, uh, again, talk a little more about uh, some of the show coming up next month. So stay with us. Be right back. Reformed theology is biblical Christianity come into its own. And by that I mean Reformed theology is a desire to express biblical truth in its fullness in a biblical way. I love the way that B.B. Warfield once summarized Reformed theology in saying that Reformed theology believes that God saves sinners. What we mean, first of all, is that we have a high view of God. We believe that God is sovereign that he is the ruler of all things by the word of his power, that he is the providential Lord of nations and of history. We have a high view of God's holiness, and we believe that that's one of the messages of the Bible that needs to be reemphasized, not just for discipleship, but for evangelism. We believe that message is vital to really sharing the gospel, and until a sinner comes to grips with the fact that he is rejecting a holy and sovereign God, the sinner doesn't realize the predicament that he's in. And we believe that God saves sinners. We're not people that are desperately sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not really nice people with a few things that need to be cleaned up about us. We are sinners to the core. We also believe that God saves, not that God makes us savable, not that God makes us able to save ourselves, but that God actually does the saving, that it is he who reaches out and draws his children to himself sovereignly and savingly. Reformed theology is simply attempting to do justice to what the Bible says about God, about salvation, about sinners, and about the totality of the Christian life and God's plan in this world. And so we seek to be, first and foremost, biblical Christians, Christians that believe the Bible, whose thoughts are molded after biblical teaching, and who live the Bible. And that is Ligon Duncan. He is going to be at the Nine Marks Conference tomorrow. And... Those who are in the area, again, Wake Forest, it'll be in that uh, kind of in that area. Would highly uh, recommend you come. I don't know if they still have tickets. I'm assuming that they do, um, but they're normally pretty close to uh, being sold out. So 
If you have not, uh, if you're in the area and you want to go, come check out uh, check out the tickets. Again, October 16th and 17th, the Apologetics Conference here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's going to be a great time. A uh, ton of different speakers. I was trying to get the uh, commercial to pull up there, but uh, the site is having some problems, so I should have the have that commercial uh, ready within the next uh, week or two. We'll be on. So again, join us next week. We will be doing uh, two debates, uh, one on purgatory and one on Sola Scriptura, and I'm trying to uh, figure out some more uh, in the coming weeks, as well as hopefully be able to do a whole show on the issue of the pen and how did we get uh, the scriptures, how did we get the, the books in the Bible. So join us for that, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week and be sure to uh, like us on Facebook, Theology Matters with the Palouse and there you'll find all of our uh, podcasts and discussions, articles, etc. that we put on there so uh, feel free to look us up and find us and we will see you guys uh, next week for the debate. God bless. Where are the witches? Where are the spurgeons? Reach the word. Reach the word. We need sound theology. It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable. Where living faith and definite truth dwell side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. 
But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people. And it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic to reverberate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation.